Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. You don't know what's in the tea bag until it hits the hot water. And, you know, when it, when the, when you're in kind of these moments of crisis or pain, uh, maybe the deepest parts of you start to get exposed. And in certain cases, like for me, it was really helpful to, as those things started to get exposed, to have some other objective language that I could put toward it. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation, where we pick up right where we left off and jump straight in. Enjoy the episode. My story with the Enneagram was that it was just one of many things alongside, you know, Myers-Briggs, DISC, other things, Strength Finders. And it was just kind of one of a soup. And I worked for a church planting organization at the time, and we'd use it to help identify and assess candidates and fit them onto church planting teams, et cetera, et cetera. And I had completely mistyped myself. Um, I thought that I was a seven with an eight wing. And I was pretty ashamed of the fact that I had an eight wing because, um, and this is something that I I would love your feedback on each of you as we get into it. My experience in the church was that there were some personality types that the church liked more, particularly nines, twos, and sixes um, were highly favored in the church. Unless you're on the worship team, then you're allowed to be a four. Um, Or if you're a professor at a seminary, you can be a five, but um, you certainly can't be a three or an eight (laughs) was kind of the impression that I got. So correct that, correct that mistype. But I had mistyped myself because my inner three was performing and my inner three didn't want to be seen by that group of people because it would have created shame, right? Because it didn't belong there. And ultimately that's what happened. We can get into that story. But as I left ministry, I felt a little bit in free fall and had to hang on to something. And the Enneagram became that tool that unlocked doors for me to be able to see myself in ways that I wasn't willing to look at myself without that tool. And so I have deep appreciation for the Enneagram and the wisdom it brings. And I really see the Enneagram itself as a wisdom tradition, um, more than just a personality assessment, right? It's, it's kind of a more full tradition of wisdom and has a lot in it. So as we move into this conversation about the Enneagram, how did you come upon it? And what was that first moment where you're like, oh, I think there's something to this? Yes. Uh, I've had a, it's so interesting to hear your perspective on that from the church context, Caven. Uh, I, I've, when I think of the Enneagram, I think that I've had a really, um, for lack of better words, hurtful experience and really helpful experience. So my, the first time I'd ever heard about the Enneagram was when I was helping plant a church and one of the guys who was kind of leading the charge had the whole team uh, take Enneagram tests and I took mine and I was a three and or came back as a three. And he said to me, I don't think you're a three. I think you want to be a three. And he was a three. Um, and I think he, he really was kind of making the jab that like, you're not like me. I think you just want to be like me. And that kind of tone uh, played out throughout my time working with him. And it was actually really, really hurtful. So that was just one of the many ways that I think he was, um, in a kind of sly and coy way, um, 
taking jabs at me and really hurting my self-esteem. And so that was like my first hurtful, the <laughs> first time I'd ever heard about the Enneagram. It actually kind of hurt and was confusing. I didn't really know, like, was that true? Am I, am I not a three? Am I, do I just want to be this person, but I'm not actually this person? Uh, and if I'm not this person, then who am I? Because I think I'm this person based on how I answered my, the questions. I think this is who I really am, but maybe I'm not. And so it was just really confusing. Um, and then years later, I ended up doing the test again and introduced Layla to it. And we took it together. And it was so, so, so helpful. I had now been out of that context that was really toxic and unhealthy. And it was just her and I, and we took it together. And it was just so helpful to our marriage to like, finally things that had been really hard for us in our marriage and our communication and our personality type, like somebody else or something else had kind of put language to it. And it was like, oh man, we are not just trying to pick our each other's ideas apart or like I used to call her literally I used to call her jokingly and we would both laugh but it also kind of had some truth to it I would call her my wet blanket I'm like I've got ideas every day and every day you take out your wet blanket and uh, you pour it over or you drape it over my ideas and uh, and she would laugh because she knew that that was like part of her personality and Sometimes it was funny, but sometimes it was like really hurtful and hard for our relationship because she would think so logically and she would think through all the details of my ideas. And I was just like, well, I'm just happy to be having ideas right now. That alone, the idea in itself is life-giving. And so we, it would cause like actual marital problems. And so to have a test that was like putting language to our personalities and how we complimented each other and how we could hurt each other. And it was just like, man, this is a game changer for us. And it significantly has improved the way that we um, relationally connect with each other and really lean into each other's strengths. So yeah, that's been my experience, both uh, from a helpful and hurtful perspective. And I think Layla told me this, but what's, what's her number? She's a five. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. I was going to guess as you were not just talking about her in general, but a ton, there are tons of threes and five marriages. My parents are one of them. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, I bet his wife is a five. Mm. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Which is, it is just very, very interesting. Um, but obviously I'll try to make my Enneagram story short because I could go on for a very long time about, um, just how I have found it helpful and kind of how my journey began. But, um, God really gave me, the um, the tool of the Enneagram in a time that I think uh, without it, I was really spiraling. Um, I had just had a miscarriage. I had um, just cut off my grandparents from being in my life, um, abusive set of grandparents. And we were leaving the church that me and my husband had like met at and had worked at. Um, so all of this was going on within a month and a half. All of this happened. And for some reason, um, within that time period, um, God also introduced me to the Enneagram through my sister-in-law who, um, had read the road back to you. And then I got gifted that book and, um, I had taken a couple of tests and both of my test results, um, ended up not being what I was, but reading through the road back to you really helped me come to grips with the fact that I was a four. Um, and that just gave me a, a ton of, just new language around 
who I, who I was, why I was reacting the way I was reacting to the situations that were going on in my life and how I could better verbalize those reactions to other people in a way that they could understand. Because especially when you're going through a lot of um, pain and trauma, I think you, um, you expect the people that are going through the same pain and trauma to react how you are reacting, because that's the only tools you have. And so um, being able to see how, who I was and in, especially in relation to other people and how different they were than me, it just really, um, it gave me something that made sense in the midst of a lot of things that didn't make sense. Um, and that was really a gift. Um, but a couple of the things that really made me go like, wow, this, this is really something is, um, me and my husband, we had been married for two years at that point. And I think there was a lot of parts of our marriages, marriage that we were trying to make sense of the conflict we were having. But for some reason, our upbringing and just the fact that we were a boy and a girl didn't cover those differences that we were seeing. And so having the language of me being a four and him being a one um, has drastically helped our marriage in ways that like I could probably go on about for hours. Um, but just being able to see him and see his um, critical nature as something that wasn't coming out against me, but was actually him reacting to himself was huge and has been huge for me not to be taking um, that personally, because it's not, it's not personal against me. And as well as I let my mom borrow the road back to you. And um, if I'm not sure if you guys have read it or seen it, but at the beginning of each chapter about each type, they have 20 IM statements about that type. And kind of how I've helped a lot of people find their type is if you go through all those I am statements and circle the ones that you would say about yourself, um, usually at the one of the types is going to have a lot more circled than any of the other ones. And my mom went through it and did that. And the only number that she didn't circle one I am statement on was the type four. And that just really um, articulated a lot of the differences between me and my mom, who is a type three. Um, and a lot of the stuff she tried to suppress in me growing up that she saw as being maybe too quirky or um, too different or dramatic or whatever it was. Um, and just kind of how like this is this is the standard she holds herself to and kind of seeing just kind of the weight of that. Um, that was really huge as well as coming out of a season that was really stressful and being able to see the Enneagram um, and the stress behaviors you have in seasons of stress and being able to be like, wow, um, that is extremely true for me. Like I was definitely reacting out of those stress behaviors. And now being able to use that as when I see those stress behaviors come up, I'm like, okay, what's going on? What is stressing me out? And how this is obviously impacting me more than I am letting myself consciously believe it is. So like, where, where do we need to go back to the drawing board? What do I need to cut? Like what's, what's happening here? And like, where am I needing to trust God? Um, that has been one of the most helpful things to me about it. So I think it's amazing that all three of us came to a serious place with the Enneagram through some kind of failure or hardship. And it makes me think of Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward. But it also makes me just wonder more generally, 
Do you think that that's kind of true for most people that they really come into a truer sense of themselves through the lens of the Enneagram in the midst of stress or anxiety or failure? Or is that just happen to be that the three of us all got there on that path? I think that people start to get really curious about themselves when what they've been using all along stops working. Um, and I think that those times are really, really loud when there's a lot of stress or there's huge transition or there's relational problems. Yeah, this is like a really uh, elementary example. It's one that we've heard all the time, <laughs> uh, but just the thought of you don't know what's in the tea bag until it hits the hot water. And, you know, when it, when the, when you're in kind of these moments of crisis or pain, uh, maybe the deepest parts of you start to get exposed. And in certain cases, like for me, it was really helpful to, as those things started to get exposed, to have some other objective language that I could put toward it was extremely helpful. I, I remember that moment as really kind of a, a sweet euphoria of a few weeks of really coming to see that I am a three. And even at the beginning, I thought I was a three wing two because I still thought that would carry more honor in my spiritual circles than being a three wing four. But yeah, like you guys have both mentioned being able to name my own movement in the world with language that I wasn't stumbling around for anymore. I like it had been given to me by people way smarter than myself. And it named me so beautifully and with so much compassion that that moment of being able to speak about yourself in ways. And, and I, you know, I'm sure each of us could just give a bunch of examples, but I'm curious if you could share one or two examples of the way that the Enneagram has changed the way you see and talk about yourself in a way that you receive as a, as a great blessing of the Enneagram for for me, I felt um, before I could put language to like my personality type, I felt really flaky because I felt like I was always jumping from one idea to the next without really fleshing out all that there was in the first idea. And so I would like, I was always starting things. I just start a bunch of things. And, um, and I was like, people, you know, married to a five, she's like, what do you, well, first, like, why are you starting that without knowing all the details? <laughs> you know, you need to start, you need to like sit down and like take the time to really think through all the angles before you just start something. And I would just get so much joy out of starting something. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm like, well, I've moved on to something else or that thing is still going, but like, I, it doesn't mean that's the only thing I'm going to put all my energy toward and I'm moving on to the next idea. And before I would feel kind of like flaky or am I not, committed to it or am I just not a committed guy and I think after learning my personality and, and the three of just like achieving things part of me has felt a lot of freedom to just like that's who what I've learned is I can start things and then where I'm trying to grow is be really good at delegating certain things so that they can sustain because I'm not a good sustainer I'm a good starter but then finding other people who are good sustainers who maybe wouldn't have the personality type to start it and so I've just been really, really good at delegating to people who have different and great, unique giftings that I don't have and really feeling confident in that. Like, this is how God has wired me and it's okay to start a bunch of stuff and to have a lot of good ideas um, and to and to act on those ideas, even if there's a lot of them. Um, 
and not feel really guilty about that, but just kind of rest in that's who I am and that's okay. At this point, we hit a technical snafu and lost Elizabeth for a little bit. So Jared and I just begin chatting friend to friend about life. And that will explain why you hear us welcome Elizabeth a little bit into this conversation. So forgive the technical difficulties and enjoy the episode. So tell me more about life in the country. Tell me about your house. Tell me about, I like, I I lost track of that. Dude, we, uh, we weren't really looking at houses. We didn't think we could afford them. We were really focused on like getting out of debt. And, um, so we just like, we weren't really looking. And then we got kicked out of our, this little home that we were renting. Like our landlord basically she wanted to double the rent, but she couldn't legally do it. So she's like, can I make the deal really sweet for you mm. and pay you to get out? Mm. So we're like, all right, you know, we're not going to make this hard for you if you want to, you know, move on with your home. So we moved out of that into this little town, town home right when the pandemic started. And it was just like miserable. And the kids literally, there was no place for them to play outside, nowhere. And we were just in a parking lot. And I was just going crazy because mm. we couldn't go anywhere because of the pandemic. And we had nowhere at our own little town home that they could play. And we had people below us, so we was constantly telling them, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. You know, it's just so stressful. So stressful. Yeah. So I'm like, I started like kind of looking around at houses and I found this house out in the country and it was just like, it was beautiful. And like, we were, it was like dream house, but we're like, there's no way we could afford that or whatever. But we went to, started lending, talked to a real estate agent, got approved. And I was like, holy cow, we could, I think we could do it. And, and it wasn't even that much more than what we were paying for the townhouse for rent and i'm like oh my gosh this is crazy because mm. interest rates are just so low right now yeah. so this guy built this he's a contractor and he built this home one year ago and he built his dream home what? like it's on a third of an acre and he just built his dream home so it's all it has everything that he could have like splurged on he splurged on because he thought he would live here for 30 years plus you know like die in this house and uh, I guess apparently his wife, like one year in, is like, no, I want more land. I want to be more out in the country. Oh, no. <laughs> so he reluctantly was just like, all right, I guess we'll sell it. And uh, we happen to be the first ones that put in a good offer. And uh, so we bought it. But dude, it's just like, it's a beautiful home. And it's just not like every, like our, our bathroom, like our shower, he turned it, it's a steam room. Like oh. you can turn on a, a digital button and it's in steam. Room. Nice. <laughs> feels like it's just like in a nice hotel, you yeah. know? But, um, so we got this, like, it feels like a brand new home. It's only a year old. Mm. Um, and it's out in the country a little bit and we got a little bit of land and some chickens and yeah. And it's, and it's packed full of all of his love, right. And all of his dreams yeah. and hopes and that, that, yep. that gives a house a spirit. Yep. And just doesn't feel like a track home that somebody threw up with all the cheapest, fastest things, yeah. you know, like you can tell he really put effort for quality and uh, it do this home would be like two, $300,000 more in the Portland suburbs. So we, we moved out like 45 minutes out from Portland area. So we're further away than like from grandma and things that we would love and friends that we really built. But it, I personally, the trade-off feels fine to me. I like 40 minutes doesn't feel crazy to go back and see everyone and to, for, for what we get. I imagine because Layla's an oncology nurse, you guys are taking things pretty seriously. Is that right. a safe assumption? For sure. We have, we're not hanging out with anyone, anyone, yeah. you know, we're like totally by ourselves anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's man. I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation with Layla just to unpack. Like there's just so much richness that she brings in. And I mean, I, 
Fives are beautiful people and I have a hard time understanding them. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. It's been 10 years of like trying to figure each other out. <laughs> yeah. But without the Enneagram, honestly, we would have been like, we'd be in such a worse spot because oh, yeah. it's, we know we like now just know each other. Yeah. Like, Oh, okay. Oh, you're just operating in your five and I'm operating my three. Yeah. Yeah. But. What's because I mean, that's been so helpful for me and Jen because Jen's a one and I'm a three. Mm. So we're both really driven people, but we're driven by super different things, right? Jen yeah. is driven by like, you have to do it the one right way. And I'm driven by like, I have to do it in a way that will make people like me. <laughs> it creates conflict because I'm willing to cut corners where she isn't. But in our, yeah. in our marriage, like it can be frustrating sometimes too, because I'll be like, babe, you're doing that because you're a one. And she's like, I know. And it's the right thing to do. <laughs> I'm like, no, you're just doubling down. <laughs> That is hilarious. Yeah, like, you know, one, one current thing going on is like f for her, like just saying the words, I'm sorry, immediately mm. is like a big deal. Right. Cause like, of course, you know, the right thing to do. If you hurt someone's feelings, you say, I'm sorry. And so just yeah. say, I'm sorry. And for me, I'm like, no, I need to like make sure it's authentic and comes from a very <laughs> real place inside myself. And so I need like days and hours and minutes to process this before I can really say I'm sorry because I have to really understand it and I have to understand where that action came from. And she's yeah. like, but you're doing it wrong. Just say I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? So that as long as you've been married and that's still like saying I'm sorry is like the thing that you're talking right? about. Right? Can you believe right it's now? been a decade, man? Yeah. yeah. Welcome back, Elizabeth, by the way. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> my husband is working from home, so I think this has happened to him a couple times, but I've never had it, had it happen while I was on something. So, <laughs> Not a problem. Honestly, I was worried that my internet cut out because I'm having to use my hotspot on my phone mm. because out here in the country, we have such terrible internet that I just don't trust our Wi-Fi to be stable enough to do these calls. So, mm. um, By the way, Elizabeth, what does your husband do? Uh, my husband works for the state, so he's kind of in one of those jobs that he's like, I'm even bored talking about what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but he basically, he supports the people in IT that work on unemployment. So he's been very busy for the past couple months. Okay. And, and Jerry, we were just talking a little bit about Layla, but I realized that Elizabeth doesn't know anything about Layla. Do you want to say a little bit about her as we move forward? Yeah. Um, Layla is an oncology nurse. Um, she works part-time at the hospital and, um, has spent our entire marriage really walking people into their, uh, oftentimes into their death journey or sometimes out of that, um, and celebrating. But a lot of times for people that are getting their, the news that they are getting their death sentence, um, unexpectedly. So we have been, we have talked about, we talk about death in our house like more than I think the average person probably does, but uh, she's so gifted at it and has the perfect personality type for it. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I really want to pick her brain about that when she's willing to come on the podcast because some of the wisdom writers I've been reading recently have talked about the connection between like soul, solitude, and death. And how like, yeah, anyway, all, and, but, but as a three, I am incredibly fearful of death. And I know that's not a very Christian thing to say, but it's a very three <laughs> thing to say, right? Cause death is the ultimate <laughs> failure, right? <laughs> it's, it's the one failure you can't ever come back from no matter what. 
And so it terrifies me. And yet, as I seek to be a more soulful person, all of these wise elders who have gone before me are saying, death is important to the journey of soul. And I really think I can learn a lot from Layla just hearing her story and how she processes that and the way that she's grown through that. So that's, yeah, I look forward to that conversation with her. Death, it's interesting as a three. Yeah, de- death is... Um... I would not have said this before I met Layla, but now being married to Layla for the last 10 years and hearing people's death story day in and day out, death has become such a massive motivator for me. Like I think about it daily. In fact, I want to make a pitch to my publisher about writing a book on death because it has shaped, the reality of death has shaped my thinking so much. It affects my day-to-day life. And I, I wouldn't say I'm fearful of it. I, what I'm fearful of is that I know it's coming so, so fast. And what I'm fearful of is that I'm not going to get everything checked off my to-do list um, before it hits me. And, and I just feel like, man, it is going to be here so quick. I always tell people, and this is like this thought for whatever reason trips me out big time, but a hundred years from now, like every one of us on this planet are going to be gone. Like we'll be replaced in just a hundred years. Yeah. I think it was Anne Lamont who said that a reporter asked her, what does the world look like in a hundred years? And her answer was all new people. Isn't that, it's so crazy. So crazy. Even our kids, like you look at our kid, my kids are young and they're like in a, you know, I have a one and a half year old hundred years from now. She's probably not going to be here. Uh, and it's just, that's an, that's an, such a crazy, and it, and then when you think about how fast a year goes, like how fast this year we heard about pandemic stuff in early March and we're already, you know, getting in almost out of summer, the year's like almost over. That's how fast they go. Yeah. And I'm like halfway done with that, with my life. Yeah. And so I'm just motivated by that thought all the time. And, uh, anyway, yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. So, yeah. So when I, when I first heard that concept, it rattled me to the bones. It was like unnerving to think that in a hundred years, it's all new people. Everything that I care about in this world will be completely gone in a hundred years, which has led into some interesting things with agriculture, um, which I don't know if we, we we can go there, which is fine. Um, but yeah, there's, there is like, for me, there's this well of like existential dread almost like I can become paralyzed by that thought because I'm like, Mm. How can I do something that matters so much that it'll break through that hundred year barrier? And I just can't come up with anything because I'm just not that talented of a person and I'm learning to come to grips with that. But like, there is a sense of like how I'm <laughs> wired is true. just like, oh no, if it doesn't matter in a hundred years, why am I doing it now? And it can be really hard for me to get over that if I get trapped in that loop. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if it's death as much as um, I have a really, really high respect for grief um, that Mm. I wish um, others were as strong in as I think type fours are. (laughs) Um, I just think that uh, as a type four, um, if an emotion is really, really loud and strong, um, like I believe it like needs to be felt and it needs to like be respected because there's a reason it's there, even if it's extremely painful. Um, so all the things in my life that have happened that have caused great grief, um, like one of the parts of it that has been the most painful is just how I felt, I felt like others were very quick to dismiss my grief, um, Mm. or wanting to fix it. And I'm like, oh no, this is here to stay because this thing that I'm grieving over was important. 
Um, Hmm. And I kind of feel like it should have been to everyone else too. (laughs) And so that feels um, confusing. So I'm not sure if it's necessarily like, um, like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm scared of death. Um, I talk about death quite a lot. Um, I feel like probably more than the average person. Um, But I think it is also, it's like what my thoughts about it are like, how, how do I want, how do I want to have lived that will, um, that will impact people and like, how do I want them to respond in the grief that they're feeling, um, because of it. Elizabeth, have you had increased conversations around collective grief during this season of 2020 and COVID and Black Lives Matter? Yeah. So I definitely have heard, um, collective grief like talked about so much more just like um everyone realizing that these antsy angsty um irritated feelings are grief um and that being news to people um whereas like i don't feel like me and my fellow fours like i have a whole page that's just fours i think that was like our first instinct to be like oh my gosh i'm i'm grieving all of these things are being canceled like this is causing um an absence and a pain that i am grieving in my life and it's been really cool to actually see everyone else kind of catching up to that thought of like, why am I feeling this way? And the answer being grief, I think has been um, really healing and really cool that that has been a topic of conversation that's come out of all of this. Walk us through how your life is different and or better because of the Enneagram today. Yeah, I think, um, so the way that Enneagram is like affected me daily, one is probably the, the most uh, impactful is my relationship with my wife. And just knowing, again, having language that helps me understand how I'm wired and language to help understand how she's wired and um, really to lean in. I think on a very like personal level for us as uh, in marriage, there are things that I would have naturally drifted towards bitterness towards Layla um, if I didn't have the appropriate language. And I would have thought things like, man, why is she like that? Why is she always putting down my ideas? How come she is a wet blanket? Um, and now I really have seen her as such a gift to me from God to help me become a better man. And she has made me a better man. Um, because of her personality. And so having that language of just like, man, we are so different, but this is exactly how God has wired her and it is for my good. And then the other thing that in just kind of a a more personal, for me personally, the way the Enneagram has helped shape is um, understanding my motivations behind why I do things. And Cabe and you and I have talked about this a lot before, but just like um, I can get a lot done and I'll, I'll check a lot of things off of a to-do list or a bucket list or a dream list or whatever. Um, but being able to step back and realize my motivation behind that and recognize really some unhealthy reasons that motivate me. Um, and so some people might look at my life and say, look at how much he's got done and think that that's awesome. And sometimes I look at my, the things I've got done and thought, man, I, I didn't do that for anybody for no other reason than for somebody else to get a, give me a pat on the back. And, um, 
and to realize like why why did I do that? Like that's a really dumb motivation. The the things and that I step into strictly because I want somebody else to acknowledge it and think that I've got value or worth based on what I can get done. So Jared, you're talking a little bit about understanding your core motivations and Elizabeth mentioned that envy is kind of the, the core sin of the four and traditionally the core sin of the three is deceit. So how are you relating to deceit these days? Yeah. Before I answer that, I would love a little bit more understanding on like what the Enneagram assessments, how they, how they phrase it. Elizabeth, do you know, like for the threes kind of core sin, uh, can you give me a cliff notes version when they say deceit, like what they mean by um, that? So the most simple way that I explain deceit to like my um, coaching clients, because it tends to be a really touchy subject with threes. Um, most threes don't really relate to the fact that they are deceiving or doing things like that. So uh, the most um, American way I can put it is um, that it's people pleasing. Um, you will hide parts of yourself um, strategically and purposely um, in order to impress and appease others. Well, not only does it make sense, but it's like immediately convicting. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've done that my whole life. I think I've, uh, I can think back even to me as a kid, um, kind of figuring out the ways to people please. And I don't know, and I'd be interested to hear what your guys' thoughts on this, but there is a, um, a high awareness. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is a general trait in threes or in multiple personality types, but the uh, kind of a high EQ, like I remember even as a kid being able to sense what other people are feeling or thinking. And then really that being because of that, um, feeling that kind of high, highly in touch with what other people are feeling that being all the more motivating for me and in my personality type to just like, okay, what do I need to say or do in order to really get this person to like me or impress me? Cause I can actually feel or sense when they don't. And so I'll change or I'll adapt in any way that I need to in order for them to really, uh, uh, you know, think that I have some kind of value. Yeah, so the entire heart triad, which is twos, threes, and fours, um, we are said to be very um, socially aware. So we just pick up on social cues and the look people give us and the tone of voice and stuff like that um, much more easily than um, the other six types. And so I think that that's part of what you're catching on to there. But I've definitely heard a lot of threes um, talk about specifically that when I can tell so like so strongly that someone is asking this of me, it almost feels unpolite not to oblige. Mm. Yeah. And what I've noticed in my own journey as a three is that my awareness of emotions in the room doesn't lead me to engage the emotions. It leads me to perform so that those emotions can be absolved. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Whereas I think a four is much better at sensing the emotions in the room and then actually like speaking to the emotions, right? Like I am so bad at knowing my own internal emotions. So this is where deceit comes out for me. Like I deceive myself by saying, oh, I don't feel that way. I don't feel those feelings. I don't, even though I can be aware that they exist, I deny that they're there and I deny engaging them and I deny giving them the space that they need. And it becomes really manipulative because I can sense everyone else's emotions around me and deny my own. So what I end up doing 
is I end up playing with all the emotions in the room to get my performative outcome, right? To get my checklist completed while I've at the same time completely dismissed all the emotions as being important in the room, whether inside of me or inside anyone else, which can leave people feeling like really used up really fast. Mm. Yeah, I relate to that, man, for sure. I wouldn't even, I don't know if I would have been able to say I relate to that until I heard you articulate it. It's definitely a really interesting part of being part of the heart triad because um, what basically that means is that we are all uh, emotion first um, receivers. So any information we take, um, it goes emotion first, which is why um, things feel personal really quickly with us that doesn't seem to affect other people. Um, But what threes do with it is emotion hits them. Um, like someone says something, they immediately will feel a strong response to it. And they very, very quickly try to turn it into logic. So if you can um, put yourself in the other person's shoes, or you can be like, oh, well, they're having a bad day. Or, oh, if I was them, I would have might have, I might have said that too. And I wouldn't have meant it. Uh, then you can, you can turn off the emotion. Mm-hmm. Or you can shove it down. It actually, usually it comes out other ways later, but um, that's kind of how threes like feel through that is that the emotion is always there. It's just very quickly um, removed. Whereas Mm. for twos, they feel that emotion and they act on it. So usually by trying to fix the situation or um, like, let me give you a hug. Let me do something for you. Let me help you like that kind of thing. Whereas fours feel the emotion and they process it with emotion (laughs) of okay, how is this making me feel? Why do I feel that way? Oh, is it some past thing? Like what other emotion is this touching and what is it turning into? And that's why fours are considered the most emotional number on the Enneagram is because that's how they process. Mm, That's amazing. Okay. So Elizabeth, my wife is a one and you know, there's a lot of talk about ones having kind of that internal critic and my wife affirms that. And as I was thinking about that, I, I think for threes, I less of an internal critic and I have an internal audience, right? I have like this internal clap track that when I do things, like I have all these little fictional stadiums full of people just like praising my every move. Like you're so amazing. Can you believe you just took out the garbage? You're just this fantastic human being because I so deeply desire like the affirmation from other people. But then my four wing side, I relate to this idea that like I have this internal authenticator, right? Like this, this, um, almost like this IRS agent who's like, but was that real? Was that true? Was that your most authentic self? And then that's where my, like my internal critic comes in. Do you relate to that sense at all as a true four or how do you see that playing out for you? Mm, um, yeah, I could definitely relate to that sense of that in, inner authenticator. Um, I think how it tends to play out for fours, the strongest is fours kind of get this bad rap of um, like they don't want to indulge in anything that's popular or stereotypical or normal. And um, really, that's because when you are motivated by authenticity, you are so scared of being influenced because um, you don't want to do things that aren't actually you. You don't want to be fake. You don't want to be copying, all those sorts of things. Um, so I feel like a lot of it turns into that I, do, I don't want to be influenced, which can make it, um, can really give me a stubborn streak mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, when I feel people trying to influence me. And I feel like threes, especially, I think you guys are um, phenomenally gifted at influencing 
um, and being encouragers and influencers and motivators. And so the threes in my life, like I said, my mom is a three. I see it especially come up with her of this, like, oh, you, you are smooth at this. And I, I'm going to be more authentic than that. Mm. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to what you are saying. Mm. One of the ways that um, I've seen the Enneagram change me into a much better person has been um, just finding a lot of humility um, within understanding um, how limited my view is of the world and how limited my perspective is, especially as I've um, gone on this journey this past like nine months of writing um, an Enneagram devotional for each type um, and struggling through the areas of other types that are their strengths that are my weaknesses. Um, and really that there's just an inner part of me that wants to dismiss that strength as important, hmm. but having to really dig into the Bible and be like, no, how is this strength reflecting God? And where does God say that this is important? And he does. <laughs> um, and having to really wrestle with that. I think that there is so much of that that has made me um, so much more humble to how much, we all need each other um, and how much everyone has so much to offer, which has in turn like made me realize how much I have to offer. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy so much that is sacred about transitions about that that engagement with source you know to kind of um in my view it's almost like the universe is asking you who you are who you want to be you know and that response is always so interesting because it could be anything um it seems like most of the time but um i would say that my first um, birth support client was my mother when she had my sister I was three at the time and I knew that the first thing I needed to do was to get her some tea which I did and um, and so you know that's where I started a huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project and a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content including the name of this podcast and the cover art as you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now. <laughs>